Eleven of Us is sponsored by Temenos. Join C-level banking executives, rising stars of fintech and industry influencers at the Temenos Community Forum online on the 26th and 27th of May. TCF is the industry's premier event, bringing customer insights, key announcements and the latest demos from Temenos direct to your screen in this two-day interactive free-to-attend event. Hear from inspiring speakers from Temenos's CEO to industry changemakers like Barclays, Varo and PayPal as they share their best practices for digital transformation. Search Temenos TCF online 2021. Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you, we dig into the future of work and financial services, eBay offers loans to its UK sellers, and Elon Musk's Saturday Night Live debut sends Dogecoin prices tumbling when he called it a hustle. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 528 of Fintech Insider. My name is Kate Moody and I'm joined today by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Sarah Kashansky. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I am very excited that next week I will be able to go and sit inside a pub. This is what is sustaining me this week. We are we're very busy at eleven of us and I was utterly convinced yesterday was Thursday because I was couldn't possibly have only done three days' work. So I am I am living on tender hooks when I'm allowed to go and sit inside a pub. I'm very British like that. Have you have you got one in mind? Is there a local that you've got your eye on? Mate, I've got one booked. Like, I'm not taking any chances. (laughs) Well, you have to drink on my behalf, so uh, go for it. Um, Of course, we're not alone. We're never alone. But today we're joined by some particularly awesome guests. So making her Fintech Insider news debut, we have Ruby Hinchliffe, reporter at Fintech Futures. Welcome to Fintech Insider. How are you doing? Hi, Kate. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, It's really nice to be here. Yeah, I'm doing well too. And and like Sarah, little things like booked pub visits are, are getting me through the weeks at the moment. I've got one tonight which I'll be shooting off to after this. So yeah, but it's it's a little bit rubbish. The weather's pretty wet outside, so we're going to have to brave the the storm. But um, I'm looking forward to it all the same. You're doing the uh, glass of wine in one hand and umbrella in the other kind of vibe. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks very much for joining us. We've got lots of fintech news to dig into this week, so very glad to have you with us. Uh, and alongside Ruby, also making her fintech insider news debut, we have Ava de Cruzet, Chief People Officer and VP of Strategy and Business Operations at GoCardless. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm I'm very good, thank you. And I'm particularly excited that this is coincidentally, I guess, a all-female episode of this podcast. It's great to see um, women having a conversation about fintech. Cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, lots of lots of stories for us to and, and a, a really big week for you guys at, at Go Cardless. So definitely excited to get your perspective on that. Thanks very much for joining us. So let's jump straight in. We need to get uh, Ruby off to the pub ASAP. Um, first up. Uh, <laughs> First up, the future of work in financial services. So go cardless, let staff work overseas for 90 days a year, and Monzo become the first UK bank to offer staff paid leave after pregnancy loss. Employees at go cardless are to be given the opportunity to work away from home for up to 90 days in a year, with half of staff saying that they would like to work anywhere in the world. Those who qualify for the workaway scheme can request to work from any location that meets go cardless standards for safety, security, and privacy. GoCardless has created a head of workplace role to lead the rollout of adaptive working. And this same week, it was also announced that Monzo has become the first bank in the UK to offer paid leave to employees affected by the loss of a pregnancy. Either partner can take an extra 10 days off if they lose a baby due to abortion, miscarriage or stillbirth, regardless of when in the pregnancy it happened. So some big and exciting changes. Uh, Ava, naturally, we should probably come over to you first. So what can you tell us about about this? Um, why was it so important for GoCardless to create this policy? 
Yeah, so this workaway policy that we announced yesterday was really um, rooted in the feedback that we heard from our employees. So we ran a survey, actually we ran multiple surveys throughout the pandemic to see how our employees were faring with the, the move to remote working. And most recently we ran one to um, gear it more towards what they were expecting out of the return to the office eventually. Um, and one of the things that came out really strongly is that after um, we ran the survey in February, so at the time it would have been, I suppose, 12 months into this strange experiment. Um, the thing that a lot of them really appreciated about um, working remotely, in fact, 66% of our staff said this, it was the flexibility. It was the flexibility to manage your hours the way you, you want to manage them, the flexibility around um, actually having more time because you're not commuting. Um, and, and that just inherently gives you... Um, Again, more flexibility to, to use that time as you wish. And so we thought about ways to kind of preserve that. And the work away policy, which lets employees work from, uh, in a broad location of their choice within certain constraints for 90 days, uh, in any 12 month period is one way of doing that. And we know that half of our employees are interested in, in making use of that. Um, and so it's part of a wider kind of take on how we're going to evolve our workplace, which we're calling a adaptive working, right? So when we go back to work, we're not intending to go back to the old ways of working where everybody will be in five days a week. It's very much about taking the learnings from the past 15 months and knowing that people really value that flexibility, but equally, there is still a lot of value in bringing people together in the office. Um, and so it's it's really evolving towards the office being a, a collaboration and socialization hub. Um, but then where employees do their work, um, particularly individual kind of non-collaborative work, is entirely up to them. Um, and so this is how, how we're kind of starting out, right, as we re-enter the, the real world again. Um, but we're very much taking a strategic view of this, and, and we know that um, this will be a test and learn process. It will be iterative. And we want to manage it as actually a source of competitive advantage, a way for us to attract the best talent and retain and engage that talent and set them up for success to do their best work. Um, and in fact, that's why we've we've also hired a head of workplace um, to to manage this for us. Yeah, that was going to be my just my next question, obviously about that sort of head of workplace role. You know, so that's part of the it's part of the story. You know, what what are the main objectives for that role? What what is that that individual going to be responsible for, and and why is that so key? So in the very short term, um, Lloyd, who's our uh, head of workplace, Lloyd Lissade, and, and he brings a wealth of experience from both um, WeWork and CBRE, he's going to be in charge of reopening our six offices that we have around the world. Um, and that's not a small task, right? Because it's not just about, you know, letting everybody know that they can show up again and, and literally, you know, opening the door to the office. It's um, reviewing all the kind of health and safety guidelines um, and, and giving people context around how we should behave in, in an indoor environment for the, the near future. Um, so that's a big piece of work. But then in the medium to long term, his role will really be about managing the workplace um, as a product. And I mean that in the kind of tech sense of the way, where we look at this as, um, you know, as I was mentioning before, a source of competitive advantage, a, a product or a service that we give to our employees that creates value for them. And so we're constantly going to be looking at how do we enhance the value of that, that product, that experience through better office design that um, leads to better collaboration, through um, where our offices are located, um, through the tech that we build throughout our office. And so he's really going to be the, the workplace product manager. Okay, nice. It's really interesting. Um, Sarah, I'm going to come to you on on this one. What, what do you see happening elsewhere in the FS space? You know, is this the start of a, a new normal for the industry as a whole? Or you know, do you think GoCardless are going to be flying a lone flag on this for a while? Um, no, I think I think this idea of being able to, allowing people to work remotely as in from another country um, is a really interesting one that we've seen crop up across a few certainly startups you know Revolut introduced a similar policy last month um, as far as I understand it and Ava will know a lot more about this than me but you, you kind of have to specifically set a limit on it I think because of tax things and also um, if you're working abroad your employees then caught under two different sets of employment law and that can make life really difficult if you're trying to manage an employee who's like caught under French 
employment law and English employment law. Um, but I think I can see the appeal, and I can certainly see the appeal for fintechs that are based in um, in in the UK post Brexit, where they've got a lot of um, maybe European employees who might want to spend time at home. They also want to continue attracting that European talent, um, and you know, making it easier for people who aren't necessarily born in the UK to to spend time either at home or with their families abroad. I think I think is is, is a really appealing thing. Um, so I think certainly where 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 people can do it, they will on the startup side. I think you know we've seen some of the larger banks, however, be well larger financial services organisations be less um, open <laughs> to changed ways of working. So HSBC is that they're going to do Zoom free Fridays, which is a great idea. But we don't really know if that's because when they bring everybody back to the office, nobody will need to be on Zoom anyway. Um, or, or if that's, you know, a short term effect. And, and, and JP Morgan have been particularly militant and said, no, no, you must come to the office. And I find that a little short sighted because JP Morgan um, seem to have this impression that they are so wonderful to work for. And the name means so so much that people will willingly commute for two hours to be in their office rather than, you know, go and work for a competitor who lets them, you know, work more flexibly. I think that's short-sighted. I think we're going to see more flexibility, but I think probably from the smaller companies um, rather than the, the big banks in the in the short term, with the exception of the big banks who were desperate to cut back on operational costs and have gone, goody, we can shut down huge expensive office blocks and get everybody to work from home. And we've seen a few of those in the UK. Um, what concerns me slightly about those is they've got everybody can work from home all the time, except when they don't want to. And I'm like, have you thought about the fact that everybody might want to come on on a Monday and not work from the office on a Friday and therefore you're going to need just as much office space? Um, so I think I think it's going to be interesting. I think hopefully we will see some of these changes staying. Um, I don't know. I just wanted to pick up on the Monzo piece as well, because you mentioned that at the top, um, which is, I guess, kind of linked to this kind of, it's not necessarily linked to, to new ways of working, but it is perhaps linked to a new way of looking at your employees. Um, and I have nothing but respect for this uh, announcement from Monzo. I think it's very forward thinking. But what I would like to say, and I, I said this on Twitter this week, and, and, and we had, had a bit of a conversation with some people about it, is that actually, I don't know that this needs to be specific. I think when you're thinking about your employees, and maybe Ava has thoughts about this, you need to rethink your definition. So what is compassionate leave? What do you want to be compassionate about? How, how do you define compassion? And at the moment, compassionate leave can be defined very narrowly. It's um, the loss of a partner, a parent, a grandparent or a sibling in many cases. And that just doesn't account for an awful people, an awful lot of people's life experiences about when they might need that time to go and heal or grieve over whether that's the loss of a, a pregnancy or whether that's the loss of, you know, even a pet or a friend or, you know, anything else that might happen in their life. The breakdown of a relationship, I would argue, could possibly count under compassionate leave. Um, so I think in summary, Small companies, tech-first companies are getting it right. They're thinking about their employees. They're listening to their employees. They're trying to make themselves attractive places to work. Um, I think there's still more to do, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, Ruby, obviously keen to get your perspective on this as well. You know, you must spend your time looking across across the piece on this. Are there any other kind of nuances to this, this kind of shift in the ways of working or a shift, as Sarah says, and how employees are being treated by their companies that, that you think are worth calling out? Yeah, I think Sarah makes a, a really good uh, array of points there. I think that um, these larger companies have really relied on the fact that they're big, that they're big names, that people will stay with them because it looks good on their CV, even if they're not treated as well. And so and that's unfortunate because I think these bigger bigger banks or bigger, bigger financial firms should really take that responsibility to look after their, their employees. But there will always be that difference. You know, I can't imagine, you know, sort of bigger, bigger firms like investing in, you know, treats to, to to send home to employees. I mean, I've been part of a, a bigger firm for the last sort of two years. I'm part of a 10,000 person company. Um, and, you know, naturally when you get that large, the kind of culture changes massively and that care per individual uh, massively sort of uh, dilutes. And so each individual feels a lot less a part of something. Um, so I think like Sarah said, that the it's going to be the smaller agile tech firms that get it right to start off with and set that great example um, because they, you know, have that insight and that oversight to, to their employees because they've got less of them and they're built in, in a more agile way. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's sad because I guess a lot of people will stay with these larger firms because 
like I said, it's, you know, it's reliable. We've just been through a pandemic. No one wants to give up their job because, you know, they don't get enough socials in the diary or they don't get enough, like, you know, gin sets, tasting sets at home to do, you know, it's priorities, I guess. But um, yeah, I think ultimately, but, but we still have a problem with with certain culture cultures in, in startup workspaces, you know, that high growth pressure is something that's always run through a lot of startups. You know, we've, we've all seen it and some startups have got a lot better um, over the years at, at dealing with that and, and sort of improving um, the way that they push that growth on their employees. Um, so it's not as if the, the startup space is perfect by any means, but it's, it is great to see Monzo and GoCardless doing this. And I think it really depends who's at the top of the, the, the hierarchy, isn't it? So, you know, I think, you know, yes, some bosses are going to be belligerent, um, you know, JP Morgan being an example. Um, but I think it's really important for the people at the top to have that open mind and be, know that people work differently. Because unfortunately, I think the people at the top will do to their companies what they work best in, like the environment that they work best in. They won't think, oh, well, maybe actually someone else would work really well remotely and get more done, whereas other people need that office and need that motivation of people around them. So I think the people at the top just need to be a bit more inclusive um, and flexible. And and that's really great to see on the startup side, but um, it'd be really great to also see that on the, the, the bigger firm side. But unfortunately, I just, I don't think we will. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see, I've seen it. Ava was talking at the beginning about this this shift to uh, being able to work abroad as, as being a real differentiator in a way to kind of attract that talent. So as you say, it'd be really interesting to see if that talent does move or starts to shift away from some of these big organisations that are less flexible and less compassionate potentially. Um, you know, Ava, we can't have a chief people officer on the show and not ask for your take on, on the Monzo story as well. So obviously you guys have done some great things on, on the kind of remote working as well, but I'd love to get your perspective on, on the Monzo announcement. Is that something you guys have looked at? Um, what's your view? So uh, I think Sarah made a, a lot of great points there about um, the the announcement that they make, or they made the policy that they announced is about a very specific type of situation that some women will find themselves in. And it's really great um, that they've put in place that policy. And I think there's a, I, I'm guessing there's a big part of it, which is about signaling, right? Signaling to existing employees and to future employees that um, if you are someone who is thinking about having children or if you are someone who has had fertility issues, this is a company that's going to care about that and you're going to feel included. Um, and, you and you know, it's connected to that idea of being able to bring your whole self to work, right? Um, and But I, I agree with Sarah's point that um, that is a sliver of, um, how, uh, you know, the many, many, many ways in which you can support your employees' Um, health and mental health. And um, I think the more interesting thing for for us, at least, I go Carlos to look at is how do we create a safe space for employees to take care of their mental health? Um, and so if I think about, you know, picking up on the Monzo example, the, the kind of, um, you know, miscarriage example, I've had friends go through this. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's really difficult is um, not wanting to talk about it, yet having to take time off because that's what your body needs and that's what your mind needs. Um, but then because there's no safe space, you basically tell your manager, I need to take, you know, holiday or I need to take sick days. And then you come back to work and people either say, oh, how was your time off? Or, oh, I'm sorry, you were ill. Are you feeling better? What happened to you? And you don't necessarily want to talk about that. But um, with this particular policy that they created, it's an opportunity for employees to actually share some of that information in a, a confidential setting, right? Because that information, I imagine, is just shared between the employee and their manager. But then it sets the context and it, it sets clear boundaries to say, this is something very difficult and very personal that's happening to me and I don't really want to talk about it. And that's going to, you know, the, the miscarriage example is, is, is one example, but that, um, can manifest in a number of different ways in, in people's lives. And so at GC, We've invested in tons in um, giving employees uh, access to mental health resources such as mental health first aiders and um, an employee assistance program and vitality resources, et cetera. And it's really all about m creating that safe space. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and as you say, perfect timing. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week. So obviously, uh, interesting that Monzo have announced that this week and as you say placed that kind of wider picture um, but definitely yeah, an area where it's a great first step but there's still plenty more plenty more to be done um, cool um, move us on to our next story so um, 
Our next story is over at Finextra. eBay is going to offer UK sellers loans. The UK arm of eBay is launching a program to offer loans to the 300,000 small businesses that sell on its platform. The online marketplace is teaming up with Ulend on the Capital for eBay Business Sellers program as it seeks to ease the cash flow crisis many of its users are going through during the pandemic. Through Ulend, eBay sellers will be able to apply for loans ranging from £500 to a million pounds. Eligible sellers complete a simple application form, receiving offers in minutes, with many getting the funds the same day that they accept an offer. Ulend is one of three SEBS financing partners, with the other two set to be announced soon. So, Sarah, I'll come to you first on this one. You know, we talk about embedded finance a lot. You know, is this a, a prime example of that? Uh, what, what's your view? Yeah, this is a great example of, of embedded finance, and it's kind of a no-brainer for anybody serving the SME space at the moment. You know, Amazon has done it for a while with varying degrees of success. They sort of, you know, their, their program perked up, and then there was a pandemic, and it suddenly slowed down in a surprise to absolutely nobody um, because their, a lot of their sellers, I think, could get could get access to credit elsewhere, particularly sort of government loans and things. Um, it, I'm surprised it's taken eBay this long, to be honest with you, because as I said, Amazon have done it for a while. PayPal have done it for a while successfully. Shopify does it, uh, you know, Intuit, people like that. It, for me, it's ob- an obvious thing to do if you're serving the SME uh, SME business or SME marketplace because you have so much data on them. You can underwrite a loan much more effectively and efficiently using different data sources. Um, you know, you can tell, I think PayPal talks about the fact that they can even analyze in advance and see when a merchant's flow is likely to peak and trough and offer them things in advance because maybe they sell sunglasses and it's seasonal or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I think it's a great example. I think it's a no-brainer for eBay. I'm quite pleased to see them going with partners because trying to do it themselves I think would have been an interesting move um, you know credit underwriting is uh, difficult and um, if you're going to be using alternative sources of data you want to make sure you're getting it right because you don't want to be you want to be a responsible lender I guess is my point which brings me on to my final point is who on eBay who is selling on eBay who would have the resources and the funds to be borrowing a million pounds I want to know I want to know that one company example because I'm fascinated now I haven't been on eBay for ages, so I don't. I don't actually know. I have to go do some research. Um, Ruby, um, do you think big banks should be worried about this? I think I've sort of read one one quote from an unnamed high street bank in the FT saying that it was a concern and they do see this as competitive threat. You know, do you think they should be worried, or are they being paranoid? Or I mean, I guess so. But you've already got you know other players out there that have got you know offerings. You've like Amazon's already got um, you know its lending offering in place, um, and you've got PayPal working capital. That they're both happening in the UK at the moment. Um, so it's not like it's the first, you know, one to do it. Um, so I guess, I mean, it depends. It's interesting the way eBay have done it because they've got kind of three different types of financing. So it gives uh, businesses quite a lot of uh, flexibility um, for how they want to take out that finance, which I think is quite a nice touch. And the way they've been able to do that is because they've partnered rather than trying to build the tech themselves. Because if they did, then they'd, it'd be like one type of lending every few years because they just it would take them so long to, to build the tech for each one. Um, so I think they've, they've gone about it the right way by getting partners and where they come in is to use their data and they can feed a lot of their data into that technology um, to to make the loans as personalised and, and, and relevant as possible. Um, but I think that, I mean... <laughs> It, it depends. I mean, I I don't cover eBay a lot, like, it, it, but I probably will more now that they've kind of come into this lending space and kind of a bit more of a rival to, to the banks. Um, but I'd say that the banks already had quite a lot of other rivals. I mean, you look at all the alternative lenders out there, like iWalker I is a good example of one that's been active in the space for, for a few years now. So yeah, it's, it's another com- competitor, but it's not like there weren't competitors out there already. Um, and did the banks sort of do anything? Well, they've been doing stuff quite slowly to, to react to it, but um, and they probably will continue to. Um, but I think what, what came out with this story at the same time, which I think was really interesting, was that they also dropped PayPal uh, quite a bit more in terms of their payment side and sort of shifted more to, to account, uh, direct to account payments rather than people being able to pay into a PayPal wallet. Um, that's still an option, but it's a secondary option now. So it's interesting to see that happening at the same time. So uh, so it seems like eBay is going through quite a big sort of transformation in the way it handles customers and payments and and then now sort of expanding into the offerings that they'll give them. Um, So I definitely think eBay is one to watch. Um, I mean, they signed a deal with Aiden back in 2018 uh, and, you know, it's only just starting to come to fruition now they're parting from from PayPal. Um, 
But I think that, yeah, they're clearly sort of serious about taking more ownership over their customers um, sort of by lending to them, they're going to get more data. And then obviously from the payment side of, um, you, know, you know, getting sort of sellers to be to be paid direct to their bank account, again, having more control over that payment process. It's clear that the direction they're going in is to try and get more data and have more control over customers. And that's probably where the threat to, to big banks will come in, because that's the sort of data that big banks don't have, let alone would know how to categorize and segment and handle and manage. So I think that's probably where the threat is. Yeah, no, data data is always everyone's favourite thing to talk about in these, in these situations. Um, Ava, kind of keen to come to you on this as well. So, you know, obviously eBay released a, a sort of a survey alongside this this announcement talking about sort of many of the difficulties that the UK small business sector sort of faced. You know, they talked about a third of, of small businesses facing going bust in under a month due to inadequate access to financing. So do you think this type of innovation or these types of partnerships are going to make a significant differences? Are there bigger issues at play here that, that maybe we need to be talking about instead? Well, certainly this, I think, can only help SMEs. Um, and, you know, talking about the data that point that was raised a, a number of times here, um, the fact that eBay has access to, in some cases, probably decades of data on these sellers, um, which immediately makes it much easier for them to, to make a decision on a loan, um, is only going to help SMEs because they're going to have better access to capital. But the interesting thing is that um, if you think about the reason why SMEs are so dependent on um, you know, debt financing and, and needing to, to kind of um, go to uh, lending as a, as a solution to run their business or, or in some cases to survive, usually that's very closely linked to their kind of working capital and their cash flow and their ability to collect payments from their customers um, in a really predictable way and in a cheap way. And so Go Cardless actually was founded on the premise that um, businesses, especially small businesses, are spending way too much time and money trying to collect revenue from their merchants, or sorry, from their customers. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, that is what is preventing them from growing. And that is why they end up going out to get loans, et cetera, when actually if they could get paid faster and not have to spend so much energy and so much um, time and and um, and resources and trying to collect, you know, late payments and failed payments, et cetera, then they wouldn't have such a need for financing. So I think there are, there are kind of deeper things at play here, um, which is probably not one for eBay to address. But certainly when you look at kind of the SME population um, as a whole, especially, you know, coming out of the pandemic, um, I think kind of how they go about collecting their revenues is an interesting one. Yeah, no, definitely cash flow. Whenever we, you know, I interview a lot of small businesses as part of my my everyday job at LMFS, and, and cash flow is always, uh, you know, this this the cliche, you know, cash flow is king is is actually a very very true cliche. So it crops up time and time and again. Um, Sarah, obviously, we've talked a lot on the show previously about other partnerships that kind of are aiming to do similar things. So um, you know, Shopify, Amazon, their hookups with, with Goldman, etc. So you know, are there any? Uh, do you think eBay are just trying to copy them? Is this the same? Is it different? Um, what, what's what's your view? Well, I think, as I was saying earlier, I think they're a little bit late to the game, actually. Um, I, as I said, I think the partnership is a good move. But but to Ruby's point, I just want to pick up on the fact that exactly they've got multiple partners here. Um, and that's probably something slightly different to what we've seen elsewhere because it gives them a little bit more flexibility in what they can offer. Um, I think also this kind of awareness for the, from even from the tech giants if we're going to call them that, that you can't necessarily go it alone. There are almost certainly people out there who do these things better than you. And yes, as we've all said, the tech giants have got all the data. And yes, they can, you know, analyze it. They have actually got the, the, the skills and capacity to do that. But do they have the understanding of what it takes to be a responsible lender? And I think we'll see this, you know, in coming forward to, uh, to the fore in fintech generally and, and finance generally is that we need to start seeing a reimagining of credit. We've already started to see it with buy now, pay later lending really coming back into trend. Um, but, you know, you, you think a lot about what we've seen in fintech. We've seen a lot of payments innovation. We've seen a lot of retail banking innovation. We've seen not so much savings innovation, but we've seen very little credit innovation. And I think across the board, that's really the next big battleground is to make 
um, capital, uh, sorry, credit available to people who need it um, to expand their business or to expand the value of their house or, you know, to get a car that helps them get a better job, whatever that is that they need it for in a responsible way and in a way that takes into account those people's individual circumstances and not whatever model it is that some credit bureau or bank has been using for I don't even want to know how many years. I won't even hazard a guess. Um, but yeah, I think credit generally is, there's a, a really good space there for innovation. I think it will take specialists. And I think perhaps eBay has realized that by choosing to partner. Yeah, and I wanted to, to jump in as well, because if you look over at Asia Pacific and, and the big techs over there, they've already moved quite far in terms of the amount of lending they've done to, to businesses and consumers. I mean, if you look at all the, the palaver around Ant Financial or Ant Group, as, as they now go by, um, and why they couldn't do that IPO is because a huge amount of their lending was not insured by them personally. It was all kind of you know, the balance sheet wasn't insured enough by them as, as you know, a financial firm has to insure a number of its loans um, to be able to kind of run and operate, basically. And that's why they got reined in was because they've been lending so much, but they hadn't insured sort of so many of their loans themselves um, that they then got sort of, you know, told, no, actually, you need to start acting more like a financial services firm now because you're lending so much. You're a big player in the market. So it'll be interesting to see how kind of players like eBay, Amazon, as they continue to lend, uh, as they become more popular alternative lenders, um, how will they be regulated? Because we're already seeing sort of, obviously, China's a, a lot further ahead. Their big techs have been able to grow a lot bigger. So hence why they're being more regulated now. Um, but we will get to that point with players like eBay and Amazon. And it'll be interesting to see what sorts of um, sort of licenses they need or how they need to change their balance sheets when it comes to lending. Um, because I think that there will be this attitude of, wait, hang on a minute, they're kind of lending willy-nilly and they don't have to do it under the same regulations. It's really unfair. Let's rein them in now and make them act more like a bank. Um, so I definitely think that that's something that they'll have to come up against at some point. And it'll be interesting to see how it pans out and how many similarities there are with Asia Pacific or China and then how many sort of differences there are as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Watch out for the regulators always. So <laughs> um, cool. We're going to take a quick break now. Uh, coming back shortly. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the versatile low-code platform that can build more than just apps. Has your IT modernization hit a bottleneck? Do you need to turbocharge your product development? WaveMaker provides a rich drag-and-drop studio for citizen developers and professional coding and API tools for advanced developers crafting serious banking and financial solutions. WaveMaker's open standards architecture enables further customization of the platform for app developers to easily consume your APIs. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Welcome back. Next story over for Nextra again. Google Pay enlists Western Union and WISE for remittances. Google Pay users in the US can now send money to India and Singapore thanks to integrations with Western Union and WISE. Western Union is offering unlimited free transfers until the 16th of June when sending money with Google Pay and WISE will make the first transfer free for new customers on transfers up to $500. Americans can now search the Google Pay user they want to send money to, tap pay and select either Western Union or WISE before making their transfer. Although the service begins with India and Singapore, by the end of the year, US Google Pay users will be able to send money to people in more than 200 countries and territories through Western Union and to more than 80 countries through WISE. Um, so I think, yeah, we're going to have a couple of remittances stories after the break, but remittances are obviously a big business. You know, people around the world send nearly $700 billion every year to friends and family in their home countries. And the World Bank has forecast that remittances into low and middle income countries were worth $508 billion in 2020. So it's a, it's a big deal. Um, what's the significance of, of Google getting into these markets Ava, have you got perspective on this one? Yeah, the thing that I find really interesting about this is that there are a number of uh, remittance-focused fintechs out there that have chosen to specialize in this, right? The, the one that comes to mind is um, Remitly. And the thing that's interesting is that Google decided to, they could have decided to partner with one of those companies that's already well embedded in that market um, and kind of sort of, you know, 
outsource um, the the tech uh, and outsource a lot of the payments and just have kind of a more of a customer-based sharing type of approach. But instead, they chose to partner with an FX specialist in WISE and a more kind of offline specialist in Western Union. And so it, it very much looks like they're going much deeper into remittances, which to me indicates that they believe that they can and should compete against the fintechs out there that are specializing in in remittances and that they can somehow provide more value to the payer and the payee somehow through their own uh through their own tech and i find that really fascinating um because it's it's a very specific kind of segment of of the payments market um and there must be some insight there that they've gleaned through the data that they have on their own their existing customers that um they they can somehow either you know provide the service more cheaply or more conveniently uh, through their own service yeah no absolutely um and i think really interesting to see kind of as you talked about you know the two different providers that they've chosen um i mean sarah again it's a case of someone not hedging their bets with one company kind of spreading the spreading the risk across two potentially so what do you think kind of the rationale how do you see the rationale for the choice of wise and, and western union what, what do you think's been at play there I suspect it's to do with their target markets and who people might be sending money to. Um, so obviously, you know, uh, India and, and Singapore are, are very different markets. Um, Android is obviously the the, the dominant uh, operating system in, uh, across India. Um, I don't know about Singapore. I'd suspect it's probably more balanced between between Android and iOS. But particularly if you're looking at India, it's such a huge country and, and there's so many different demographics there. My suspicion is that some something like Wise works for people who are sending money to people who have more advanced phones, who more have more advanced finances, um, who are, you know, are, are managing things with that need, as, as Ava pointed out, with a, with a more complex FX element needed. So rather than just sending money home to a family member to spend as, as they need at home. Um, I think the other interesting thing is with using wires, of course, that sending it with wise means that it can arrive if the other person has wise it can ar- arrive in in that currency with with a lower a, a lower fee on top of it i don't quite know how it's going to work with google pay i'll try to look it up and the details are just a little bit scant um but for example if i want to send money to my sister in new zealand i buy the new zealand dollars and send her new zealand dollars and she doesn't pay a single penny she they arrive in her account and she can spend them so it's much better for the person on the receiving end um i don't know if that's how this partnership will work um but that's that's one end of the market who have got the app on the other end who maybe can use you know wise who can who can have an account who understand you know international multi-card apps and then you've got the western union side which is as we said more more traditional more legacy and again i don't know the full details i, I may have missed it but um, i suspect that's for the people who you're sending money to who, who aren't as tech savvy who don't have the advanced phone who might actually still need to receive the money and go to a western union bureau and show a code that says i've received this money can you give it to me in cash i know india is trying to demonetize but I also know there's a lot of people there who are still very reliant on cash um, and, and you know, other, other means of working. So I think it's quite a savvy move when you look at that market from, from Google Pay's um, perspective. Singapore, I think, again, if you look at Singapore, probably the market they're targeting is not the Western market, if you like. It's probably an awful lot of people in Singapore are there working in, in, um, in, in lower paid jobs who come from all over the world. So a lot of the people you'll see in Singapore who are working in, uh, in houses or in those lower paid jobs are, are from places like India and the Philippines. And, and again, I think that there's a, a dual market there, which um, which Google Pay is trying to capture. So I, I do think it's savvy. I think having a choice of partners makes sense, particularly in remittances. Um, you'll note that Starling also does that for different reasons. But you can use Wise or you can use a different partner for Starling, um, depending on what fees you're willing to pay and how quickly you wanted to get there and, 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 and all those conditions. So yes, um, Sorry, that was quite a long answer. But the short answer is yes, good idea to have two partners, two different demographics targeted. Um, makes sense to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think I always find remittance is such a fascinating topic. I think even before I joined LemnFS, um, I, I did a sort of a research project around remittances. And one of the things I remember most clearly was we were looking at, I think, um, remittances between Greece and Albania. Um, so quite a specific example, but actually one of the channels that people were using was local bus networks, which just completely threw me before. You know, I hadn't really thought about this before the project, but actually yeah, that was kind of, people were seeing that as just a, a practical way to, to send money. You know, you had a bus driver who did a route from your town to a town where your relative lived on a, on a regular basis, and you could just hand over your cash and, and 
it was easier at that point in time to to do that than it was to use some of the existing solutions. So hopefully the world has, has moved on a little bit since then um, and exciting developments. But yeah, people still have such ingenious and sort of out of the box ways for, for getting money to where it needs to be. So I think it's exciting to see innovation in this space. Um, Ruby, you know, patriotic hat on, you know, obviously this is a US, big US company picking a UK fintech partner in, in Wise. So, um, you know, obviously that's Great news for them. I've, I've heard rumours, you know, why is it sort of gearing up towards IPO mode? Does that help them? Is this kind of a strategic move for them in that sense as well? Have you got any insider insights you can share? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, you hit on a lot, a lot of points there. Wise are kind of going through a big kind of revamp, obviously changed their name recently. Um, but it's kind of weird because I, I, I don't know, I still haven't quite kind of got used to it. Um, but yeah, and they are also looking at... Um, you know, I think they, they're looking at a, a weird type of IPO, though, at the moment, but like potentially a direct listing, I think. Um, but I have to double check that. But um, yeah, so I guess I think it's interesting that they're, yeah, kind of partnering with with what was traditionally kind of what they sort of was they were rivaling against through, through Google. It's, it's kind of an interesting fact that Google's bringing sort of two opposites together. Um, but I'd say that uh, for, for Wise, I think it's a, a, a good move. But I think that Interestingly, you know, obviously this is a huge deal. It's covering, you know, huge ground. And well, it will sort of cover a huge ground the more the partnerships expand. But I think there's also, when you look at the remittance market, there's also something to be said about kind of taking that more specific approach, like you were talking about very specific corridors. Um, you know, there definitely is also something to be argued and there are fintech startups out there trying to take that more specialised approach. Um, you know, obviously fintechs like Wise have already grown quite big, so they can kind of go for that big play of like lots of corridors and big partnerships. Um, but there's still definitely something to be said for these sort of smaller fintech startups getting into the to the remittance space, particularly like there's a lot of fintechs in the Middle East the, uh, you know, because this is a huge, huge remittance market and um, places like United uh, Arab Emirates, like it's a really big market in some of these countries. And they're very focusing on, on, on specific pain points um, for, for customers. And that's probably what will get them perhaps a bit more customer loyalty, because it's not just a case of sending payments. It's also solving specific needs. Like I've interviewed this one company quite a few times called Rewire. Um, they're an Israeli firm, but they're um, not necessarily focusing on, on Israel. They're um, looking to help kind of customers, say, in, in the Philippines, for example, between Europe and the Philippines. And like one of the sort of things they, they use as examples, social security payment services for Filipinos. Um, because, you know, if, if they didn't use a fintech like Rewire, um, then they'd have to go back to the Philippines to to fill out forms and stuff. So it's looking at those very specific things as well um, that will help to bring in, um, you know, customers from different regions. You know, it's all well and good having the big footprint, which is, is great, but you also have to kind of drill down and look at specific needs. Um, and I, I think that that will, will really kind of help retain customers. So I guess this is a good start to get that coverage, but I think you really do need to drill down into to specific needs to, to sort of keep, keep those customers from flocking to the sort of next best thing. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep us on the, on the subject of remittances and maybe we can talk about the next big thing. So we'll see what the, what the take is on it. But yeah, our next story is over at Forbes. So Visa partners with fintech startup Tala to drive crypto adoption in emerging markets. So Visa has partnered with Tala, a digital financial services provider in emerging markets, to provide easier access to cryptocurrencies for underbanked consumers, beginning with USD coin or USDC, a stable coin backed by the US dollar and governed by the Center Consortium. The partnership with Visa will provide Tala with the ability to issue Visa cards linked to the wallet, enabling Tala's customers to spend against a USDC balance at any worldwide merchant that accepts Visa. Through additional integration of Circle and Stellar, Tala's customers will gain access to USDC in Tala's digital wallet, supporting asset storage, cross-border transfer, and crypto fiat exchange functionalities. Uh, the primary use case that Tala say they're hoping to drive with the crypto offering is lowering the cost of remittances for its customers. And in recent years, cryptocurrency remittances have become a popular way for migrant workers to send money across borders, often being faster and cheaper options than traditional financial services. So I don't know if anyone's keen to jump into this one first. Ava, uh, you know, um, what's what's your take on this? You know, obviously, we've seen crypto in, in lots of in spaces in the sort of the investment space, um, but obviously the the use case in 
international payments is, is pretty substantial as well. And I'm only just starting to scratch the surface on that. Well, there are a couple of things that come to mind with this story. The first one is that, um, you know, as you mentioned, this is this is really a play on trying to reduce the the fees associated with remittances, which um, can be insanely high. Um, and when you think about the the type of customer that usually um, kind of uses that kind of product, um, you're talking about people for who you know every kind of tenth of a percentage point makes a difference um, in terms of the, the total amount that they're sending or receiving. So certainly, the, the, you know, this um, is a really interesting way to go about reducing the fees. The question that comes to mind for me, though, is um, the debit card usage in countries that tend to be receivers of remittances, um, you know, how high is that adoption and how convenient truly is the um, deposit onto a, a debit card going to be, um, it, this is going to increase over time, of course, because card usage does increase um, very rapid, is increasing very rapidly across the world. But I think it's it's kind of betting on that shift happening in order for, for customers to really adopt this solution. The, the second point is, um, coincidentally, um, Visa actually invested in uh, Remitly, the company I was mentioning before, um, this week, I think it was announced. So it, it's very interesting to see um, how, if you look at it from Visa's perspective, perhaps this is part of a wider play around remittances in general, um, regardless of whether it's through crypto or, or other payment methods. But clearly, this is a, a part of the payments market that they're focused on. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely hard to unpick kind of what what's driving what because I know that I remember you know, Visa have also announced a strategic partnership with Circle, who you know, provide USDC. So it's kind of hard to tell. You know, is this a remittances play or is this kind of part of the build out of their of their relationship with with Circle? So it'd be interesting to to kind of see, you know, keep track of, of of what else Visa Visa backs and, and try and deduce deduce a pattern. So um, Ruby, kind of, what's does this tick your box as sort of next big thing? Is is this kind of what you're talking about, or is this something a bit different? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something a bit different, isn't it? I mean, this is um, kind of jumping on, yeah, I guess the the crypto bandwagon, and it's no surprise that they're focusing on sort of developing markets because you know we've seen crypto doing really well in some of these markets, um, so it's no surprise that that's a, an area of investment for for them. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's, it's funny we were saying how it's sort of sporadic and um, we're trying to get that pattern, but it's not very clear. Um, I guess that's not really surprising for, for a big firm that's trying to wrap their head around kind of what's best. You know, they're probably at the moment thinking you can imagine them in a room like, right, OK, let's try some different things and see see what works. And so I think that's probably what they're doing at the moment is they're trying to see kind of what sticks and what doesn't, um, which is probably why we're struggling to, to spot a pattern at the moment. But I think that, you know, it's it's no surprise that they're investing in this space. Um, and I think for a company as big as Visa, they are so obviously hyper aware of needing to stay relevant. Um, you know, you've seen kind of with how they kind of put into that spotlight with um, kind of the payments uh, angle of open banking and, you know, trying to grab onto Plaid and then that not kind of working out. Um, and then, I mean, who knows what they're going to do now in that space. So, you know, you can see this pattern of them thinking, oh gosh, we've really got to sort of put ourselves in these ecosystems that we've kind of been fenced out of. And that's kind of traditional across a lot of different firms that kind of have been built up for a certain kind of space. But actually now we're sort of seeing whole systems be completely re- Built like I was talking to someone the other day about decentralized finance um, and how that's going to exclude a lot of banks. So I think that obviously Visa at the moment is probably just thinking, oh, we need to, you know, uh, get with it basically. Um, so I think that's what we're seeing from them now. And then, yeah, like you said, they're probably thinking this could be the next best thing. But you can imagine they're probably thinking that about a lot of different things at the moment. Um, <laughs> and they'll probably look on it in hindsight in a few years and think, oh, gosh. Wouldn't have done that. Um, but yeah, so I think this is their kind of experimental time uh, where they're investing a lot um, and trying to look like they're, you know, at the centre of what's next um, because they don't want to be seen as, you know, a dinosaur. Yeah, absolutely. No, no one wants to be seen as a dinosaur. So, Sarah, um, what's your take on stablecoins? Are you a stablecoin fan? Have you, have you spent much time looking at them? What, what's your take? I... I'm not going to express an opinion because I know there are people at 11FS with much more um, informed opinions on such matters than than me. Um, 
I will say that I think the I go back and forth on 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 propositions like this. It's, this is not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Quite a few people are trying to use cryptocurrency as a way to reduce uh, cross border the, the cost of cross border. Uh, transactions and transaction fees and remittances um i think that you know if what you're doing is genuinely trying to make the user experience better for people on both ends of the spectrum then i then i applaud it um i worry about the medium that's being used and the security of it and to ava's point is the person who's receiving the money a going to be able to spend it and b is it going to disappear or lose value in the in the transaction i assume the point of using a stable coin is that it doesn't do that it's not like you're sending dogecoin or some other coin i'm probably behind on dogecoin is probably something else now um but uh i i yeah i i honestly can't make up my mind about it i feel like there's definitely two sides to it when you're when you're talking about this use of cryptocurrency and i just my, my position as always is i admire the ambition but i want to make sure that the people who are on both sides of this are the ones who are benefiting and not necessarily the people in the middle yeah no absolutely um i suppose yeah to pick up on Ava's point as well around kind of how you actually get the money out of that ecosystem and back into the real world. I was actually speaking to a really interesting fintech a few months ago that was, again, trying to use stable coins as a as a rail to kind of move the money, but then was translating that into uh, you know, mobile phone credit at the kind of end receiver. And so obviously in some of these emerging markets, actually, it's much more practical for the person receiving the money to receive that in other forms. You, know, you don't just want to be able to cash out on a card. You might be able to want to just put it directly to use in, in other ways. And that was kind of one particular use case that they'd found or they were exploring, um, I think, in, in sort of some of the West African markets was you know, moving that that cryptocurrency and translating it into, into phone uh, phone credit, basically. So that was quite exciting. So, yeah, I think lots of different niche uh, experiments happening in this space or kind of providing value in, in different ways. Um, but yeah, lots lots of change still to come, I'm sure. But as you say, we'll see whether Visa's backed, backed the right horse or if this is just one of many, many experiments. Um, we're going to move on now as we get to the end of the show. So just to round up some other stories in the week that we don't have time to cover, but still definitely deserve a shout out. Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. So the first story today is that the UK government has kicked off the NatWest share sale. Um, so the sale of a further stake in NatWest Group, uh, which basically edges it closer to private ownership, um, is more than a decade since its rescue in the financial crisis. The Treasury said it plans to sell around 580 million shares, amounting to a 5% stake, reducing its ownership to 55%. Uh, Sky News reported earlier on Monday um, that's Monday of the week we're recording, um, that the share sale was imminent, sending shares in the bank down 1.5% to close at 197.1 pence, which is a very strange number to say out loud. Um, despite the dip, NatWest stock price has more than doubled since hitting a low of 90.5 pence in September, as optimism is built about prospects for Britain's economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. Um, yeah, not a lot to say on this, really, on the basis that we kind of expected it it to be coming. Um, I think the British way is to have banks in private ownership rather than government ownership. I think it makes sense to try and return it to that status. Um, certainly for the, you know, it would be, it would make very, it would be a very strange decision to reverse that now <laughs> and try and buy the bank back. Um, so I, I mean, I, I it was going to happen. It's happening. We'll we'll see what comes next. I think the idea of an economic recovery is somewhat optimistic. Uh, we may recover from the coronavirus pandemic, but I think here in the UK we have other economic issues, which perhaps will um, be of a greater impact uh, in the next few months and years. <laughs> um, next story over at payments.com, bill.com to buy expense software provider Divi for $2.5 billion. Bill.com, which provides back office software, has struck a deal to buy Divi in a stock and cash transaction valued at about $2.5 billion. Not too bad. Utah-based Divi's platform puts expense management software and smart corporate cards together. The Bill.com CEO said the combined company's platform will provide more automation and real-time information to SMBs, enabling them to make more informed decisions. The plan is for Bill.com, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, to acquire Divi for about $625 million in cash and $1.875 billion in stock. So yeah, lots of lots of money involved. Um, really interested to see how this acquisition plays out. We know that small and medium-sized businesses have historically been hugely underserved by banks. And even though we've seen fintech platforms 
really start to challenge that. You know, it still feels there's plenty more to build to make life easier for those customers. Um, actually, like Blake Murray, the Divi CEO, presented this merger as an opportunity to build what he described as a one-stop shop platform for business customers. Um, we've seen lots of uh, platform plays uh, coming out in the space, you know, like Square, Shopify, QuickBooks, etc. So I'm intrigued to see uh, what these guys think they're going to do that's different. Uh, and I'm also really intrigued to see what kind of commercial model they go for. At the moment, from what I can see, Build.com seems to be set up on a paid, you know, license per user basis, whereas Divi have gone for that much more kind of classic fintech offering of, you know, offering their core platform for free and then charging for add-ons. So, yeah, interesting to see how they come together, both in terms of the, the platform itself um, but also how they position themselves in the market commercially for the businesses that they're trying to add value to. Sarah, do you want to talk through the next one? Sure. So a US regulator has told Chime to stop using the word bank. Um, so the digital banking giant Chime has agreed to stop using the word bank in its URL and elsewhere after falling foul of Californian regulators. Chime is not licensed to operate as a bank in California or anywhere else for that matter, and instead works with partners that are licensed, which is the most common model uh, for neobanks over in the US. Um, despite this, until last February, the company used the URL address chimebank.com and has also been using the words bank and banking elsewhere. Uh, the commissioner has been investigating Chime for possible violation of its rules that prohibit firms from transacting business in a way or manner as to lead the public to believe that its business is that of a bank without actual authority to engage in such business. Um, two two points on this one. One, I was talking to a friend in the, the US today and actually a regulatory change is a common in the US and it's not necessarily going to be for the better. Um, you know, obviously this is a state regulator, but there's been a lot of signals from the new administration that they, they want changes in the regulatory environment higher up and more broadly. It's not necessarily a bad thing that they want change, but also not necessarily convinced that the new administration knows any better than any of the previous administrations about how to regulate fintech. Um, and I think they should really, you know, watch out for making any decisions too quickly. Um, on this issue specifically, I have written about this and tweeted about this and, and Ruby is smiling because she's probably seen me banging my head against the wall about this. If you are not a bank, you should not be calling yourself a bank because your customers do not know where their money is held. And if they do not know where their money is held, they do not know who to go to if it disappears. Um, or, you know, for example, a lot in the Europe, we have a lot of uh, account providers that operate under e-money licenses. If they go bust, your money is not necessarily insured, and people need to know that. Um, that really came to the fore in Europe after the Wirecard debacle. I know that the FCA is looking into sort of similar lines about how uh, fintechs and, and what we would call neobanks, she says, with inverted commas, advertise themselves because the customers don't know the difference and why should they know the difference in terms of service but they really need to be aware of what protection they're afforded by the provider they're using gets down off soapbox hands back to kate <laughs> i love you on your soapbox sarah you can stay there for as long as you want so uh last story in this section over for nextra freelance banking app lily raises 55 million dollars Lily, a banking app designed for US freelancers and gig economy workers, has raised $55 million in a Series B investment round. Offering features such as expense management, tax preparation and no-fee accounts, Lily has apparently doubled its account base in the past six months, claiming 200,000 users as the global pandemic forces more people into entrepreneurial endeavours. Lilac Barr-David, the Lily CEO, expects the freelance economy to grow to more than 50% of the population by the end of 2021. The company is expanding its product range over the coming months with the introduction of new features covering invoice and payment management, as well as launching a new loans product. So, yeah, lots of overlap, I guess, with other things we've been talking about today in terms of uh, small businesses and loans and invoice management, all these types of things. But um, firstly, I think Lilac Bar David is one of the best names I've heard in a long <laughs> time. I had to double, triple check that when I uh, looked at this story first off. So uh, congrats to Lily as a team and to him in particular for his excellent name. But more seriously, I think, uh, yeah, again, a really interesting raise in the SMB space with that particular focus on you know, the gig economy freelance audience in particular. I think we kind of saw lots of when, when fintech first started moving into this space, we saw lots of those companies starting out in the freelance space uh, and then moving kind of up the up the scale in terms of size of businesses. And now it feels like we're kind of reverting back and saying, you know, actually, there's still more opportunity for us to add value in that gig economy space. Um, those estimates around the population growth of this kind of worker sound pretty dramatic. But, um, you know, I guess this investment round, if I read correctly, brings their total funding to about $80 million in the two years since they've launched. So you would hope that investors have done their done their prodding. Um, 
Sarah's suggesting that Lilac is actually a woman, but I checked. I double checked the story. It says it's a. It said he, so I don't know. He or she. Congratulations to them. But uh, I'm going to blame for an extra if if I've got it wrong because it definitely says he in the article. And finally, wrapping us up for today, Dogecoin tumbles after Elon Musk calls it a hustle on Saturday Night Live. So, your favourite subject, Sarah, Dogecoin. Dogecoin lost more than a third of its price on Sunday after Tesla chief and cryptocurrency supporter Elon Musk called it a hustle during his guest host spot on the Saturday Night Live comedy sketch TV show. Dogecoin was quoted as low as $0.416 on crypto exchange Binance, down to 36% from levels around $0.65 before the show. It retraced some of that move later on Sunday and was last trading at around 0569 Cryptocurrency enthusiasts had for days been eager to see what he would say after his tweets this year turned the once obscure digital currency, which began as a social media joke, into a speculator's dream. Asked, what is Dogecoin? Musk replied, it's the future of currency. It's an unstoppable financial vehicle, but it's going to take over the world. And when a show cast member, Michael Che, counted, so it's a hustle, Musk replied, yeah, it's a hustle, and laughed. So, <laughs> uh, Sarah? as the Dogecoin enthusiast on the show. I'm going to get your reaction first. Uh, what's your take on, on on this latest development? I, I don't know. I'm not averse to Dogecoin per se, any more or less than any other cryptocurrency that may or may not be complete um, fictional money. Um, I'm more averse to Elon Musk, <laughs> generally speaking. Um, I think that the man plays with people. I think he's irresponsible. I think he has achieved great things in his life, but I think he doesn't go by the old Spider-Man, um, Anik, whatever it is, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I think Elon Musk plays with people and their finances, and um, I, I think this is another example of that. Um, I don't have a lot of respect for the man, <laughs> and that has been recorded on many podcasts previously, so that's not news. Um, I also don't know why he was hosting Saturday Night Live. I don't watch it, but my understanding is that it's supposed to be like intelligent, intellectually witty people. <laughs> um, but maybe I've missed something. Um, yeah, I think I think my bigger criticism is, is of Elon Musk. Like, you, you can't you must understand the power you wield if you've achieved the position you have and he has and a lot of people look up to him because of the success he has achieved you need to be sensible and responsible with that and I'm sorry to sound like a killjoy but I genuinely firmly believe that and I, I think he can can do and has done a lot of damage with side comments like that so sorry not much fun from me but um, I'm mainly just worried about the armies of Elon Musk obsessive fans hunting you down and you know. <laughs> well, that would just prove me right, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, Ava, are you a Dogecoin fan? Not particularly, but uh, I think that it's interesting to see this kind of, uh, I suppose, CEO as influencer uh, thing that, that is starting to happen. And, and Elon Musk is probably the, the best archetype of it, where, as Sarah uh, mentioned, you know, this is not the first time that he's tweeted something that has set off a chain reaction of financial events um, where, you know, he, he talked about taking Tesla private and um, talking about, you know, the, the, the share price of Tesla um, and what he thought it, it should be valued, et cetera. And, and that, you know, having massive, um, implications on um, on the the stock market and and um, obviously people who hold the stock um, and it's interesting that um, with you know social media and, and Twitter in particular and also channels like like Reddit as we saw with GameStop there's this kind of you know influencer role that that founders and CEOs um, the the most prominent ones at, at least are starting to play so I think that's interesting regardless of what you think of it whether it's good or bad. Okay. Uh, Ruby, your verdict? I don't know. I, I think people like Elon Musk are taking away value. For, I mean, I, maybe that's a, a controversial opinion because arguably they, you know, well, he takes away value as much, as much as he gives value, doesn't he? Because everything he says will either make it go up or down. Um, so I think that, but I think overall, he, he people like him do trivialize the, the different coins you've got out there. And, you know, Bitcoin started off, um, you know, all those years ago, and now we've got sort of. I think I was I was reading a, um, a tweet of a, an article that Jemima Kelly wrote over at FT Alphaville, and she points out that you know there's almost ten thousand copycat cryptocurrencies now, um, and I think Bitcoin has a has a cap of like twenty one million. 
Um, and whereas Dogecoin has no cap. Um, so, I, but I just think that, you know, th- these people like e- Elon Musk kind of talking about these things as if, you know, it's just such a flippant thing. It's not as if p- loads of people put their life savings in it. Um, you know, I think it, it does really bring away the value, but it also raises the question of what is value. And I think cryptocurrencies, especially these these jokey ones like Doge, Dogecoin, Dogecoin, however you want to pronounce it, because to be honest, I still don't know. Um, I think that they, um, yeah, they are they are making us question it. The, the same with like NFTs, like how what is value? Where does it come from? We're not really sure anymore. Um, and I think that's what I find interesting from this whole conversation and, and and debate is how is that going to sort of determine finance in the long run um you know i because we saw the same with gamestop as well um attaching all this value to, to things that you wouldn't have thought had any um so i think that's what's the interesting takeaway from this yeah and no, absolutely it's hard to tell if elon musk himself is taking it seriously or not because on one hand yeah he sort of says this on saturday night live and then at the same time he's also apparently talking about some sort of dogecoin funded space mission next year so he obviously kind of doesn't see it as something that's going to disappear completely but um yeah hard to hard to keep track of and at the same time this week we've also seen a story in the news about a goldman sachs uh you know, employee apparently having quit their job which i'm guessing wasn't being paid a pittance uh, after making a fortune on dogecoin so yeah ups and ups and downs a constant roller coaster of dog related crypto joy um so yeah brilliant well that's uh, all we have time for today Thanks very much for everyone for, for joining. It's been so great to have you on the show and to get your perspective. So um, where can where can people find out more about you, Ruby? Uh, yeah, sure. Probably just sort of Twitter, I guess, is where I'm most active. Um, so you can go find me at Ruby Hinchliffe. It's just my name. It's quite a boring Twitter handle, um, but it's, it's easy to find. So yeah, I would I would go with that. Um, that's usually where I post most of my stuff, but you can also connect with me on LinkedIn because I do, I'm relatively active on there as well. Fantastic. Ava? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, and also, uh, if you want to find out more about GoCardless, our Twitter handle is at GoCardless. Um, and also for anybody who's interested in joining the fabulous world of fintech, we're hiring across hundreds of positions at the moment. So if you go to the GoCardless website, gocardless.com, and hit the careers tab, you'll find all you need there to apply for a job. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Uh, Sarah? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, but if you want to tweet me about Elon Musk, don't bother, I'll only block you. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm at Sarah Kachansky. Okay. I was just drafting a tweet now, but I'll, I'll cancel it and save it for later. Um, you can find me on, on Twitter. I couldn't sadly get my full boring name, so I had to go for k8.moody. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, just my boring name, Kate Moody. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the podcast. Um, Please don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make the show better and to help others find the show. So it's really appreciated. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye.